people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What at Twelve Rules for on Twitter. I'm Sam. I'm Alex. Uh, we're talking today about um, fascism. And more specifically, uh, neo-fascism. And whether or not that has kind of any kind of use as a designation, as a, as a term that's been used to kind of uh, like a kind of an aerosol kind of sprayed across uh, movements since kind of since the Second World War, but more commonly uh, across movements from kind of 1980 or thereabouts. Alex, give us a, a brief rundown of what neo-fascism is supposed to be. And then maybe you can give us a kind of a spicy take on uh, whether or not it's useful. There's several, several different uses that the word fascism and neo-fascism is put to. Um, so there's the, there's the academic kind of way of thinking about it, which is much more like a kind of a, a periodization of um, of kind of like far-right extremist movements. And in this kind of conception, you have like fascism, which happened in the, with like a proper movement that happened in Italy and in some extent in Germany, uh, in the interwar and, and during the war. And then everything after that is then deemed neo, after fascism. There are other, other uses that I put to certain kind of like people who are like trying to rehabilitate, rehabilitate like kind of certain far-right ideas will like kind of use the word neo-fascism in, in, almost in a way to soften it and to kind of like, uh, you know, take away some of the sting from like what 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 the kind of the ideology behind it, the, the political movement actually entailed. Um, I think it's as as anti-fascist. I don't think there's there's much use to 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 using the term neo-fascism in our propaganda. It's much fascism. You know, for all like the right complaints about it being used as as, as a slur, it's, it's a very effective slur, and uh, and putting neo on the front does, I think, kind of take away some of the kind of like he's not really a fascist anymore he's a neo neo fascist oftentimes uh the use of it is kind of it's difficult because i i don't think world war ii should be seen as this kind of like cataclysmic kind of like end point between two periods or like a kind of a border between two periods um it too often kind of like implies that the fascists went up to uh, up to 1945 were then defeated and then some new kind of fascists kind of sprung into to, into life and, and they are the neos um and i think this is kind of a the, the there is a lot of like study on world war ii fascism but there is there is not like kind of any study about the bleed through or the crossover or like kind of the like the political legacy that that they gave um it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these kind of neo-fascist movements all the way through to the 1970s had leaders and key activists and organizers who were part of fascist regimes and were like young kind of soldiers and like fully committed political ideologues even today people in the uh, afd the alternative for deutschland are the direct descendants of people who were leaders in the Nazi party in Germany. So there's like a uh, continuity even until the present moment. So this, this border is like pretty unhelpful. I, I, have, a, I have to say, I think I'm, in every other respect, uh, I think I disagree with you. Okay. I think there is a real transformation that happens after 45. And there's also a transformation that happens again sometime around this kind of late period of the 1970, late 1970s into the 1980s. And I think there are actually different ways of talking about these different movements. And for example, um, 
and a lot of it turns around the fact that the Second World War and indeed fascism comes to be associated not so much with Italian fascism, but actually more properly with, um, or more strongly rather, with Nazism and in particular with the Holocaust. And the, the difference between pre-45 fascism and post-45 fascism is that there is no possibility of something like um, uh, benefit of the doubt. You couldn't say that, oh, I was really interested in the kind of socialistic aspect of early fascist movements and I, I really wanted to have a strong working class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I was worried for my nation. After 45, after the Holocaust has come into kind of public light, you can't say that you didn't know. And so there is actually a strange kind of moment in uh, after 45 where I think this designation of Neo from 45 to 80 actually doesn't designate a softening but actually it's just the hardcore people who are left behind, who have seen the Holocaust and either A, forcibly denied it, or B, said, yeah, good. And these are the really kind of hardcore people who survive in this period from 45 through to 80. What happens then after 80 is that we enter into another phase of neo-fascism. And I think this is where like the term becomes actually like more useful. And the, the, these neo-fascists are more electorally inclined. There's less like kind of overt street violence from these fascists, so it does remain in some extent. And there's also a sense in which um, they are they don't require the same kind of overwhelming commitment to the fascist movement. They don't require you to kind of submerge yourself in um, the fascist like, kind of moment totally in the same way that classical fascist uh, and classical Nazi, we should make that distinction. There is an important distinction that classical fascist and classical Nazi movements did require. Mm. I think I, yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, definitely. Um, I, I, I disagree that, there was like a sharing away and a hardening. And I don't think the the Holocaust was like the the, the immediate shock um, to like the general like Western Europe kind of cultures that is often thought about now. When we I'm, have, I'm like, not saying it was an immediate shock. Holocaust studies and, you know, like very public remembrances and stuff. And it, uh, right, and rightly so. Um, there, is, there is a very strange period of, in the 50s and early yeah. 60s when it... It, it it wasn't until like uh, Eichmann's kind of trial in uh, in Jerusalem yeah. um, that it really became like a, a, a like a, a bench point of human depravity. This like is a, yeah. This is one of the points that's made by Angelica Fenner and Eric D. Weitz in their fascism and neo-fascism introduction, which is a fantastic book, and I think we should recommend that book like more strongly than we recommended anything else kind of before. Um, the introduction to fascism and neo-fascism gives a really really solid kind of a run through of all the different theories that people have made of fascism to date. I guess it depends what, what use you're putting the, the neo to. Uh, as in, in, in academic use, it's, it's useful to, to make distinction, mainly because uh, the fascists who survived into the 50s were dealing with the legacy of defeat. They were dealing with the legacy of being the losers of like their ideology collapsing in on itself and, and being like kind of beaten by communism, beaten by like kind of these big liberal capitalist powers. But they dealt with those legacies, I think, in different ways. There, there was a hardening in some in some groups, in some kind of time periods. There was like a, like a, a move into like overt, like, you know, t terrorist political violence. There was also a softening as well. In, in some countries. Um, so yeah, so this kind of terrorist movement, for example, the Italian social movement, which during the 70s and the kind of autonomy period um, is very likely to have done, or I, I guess like we can say it, it's probably not going to be uh, slander or libel, whichever one that is for being on the radio. I mean, it's a matter of history. It's a matter of history. They were uh, involved in false flag operations um, carried out uh, ostensibly by people from the autonomy movement, but actually directed by the Italian state 
and um, perpetrated by people from the far right and uh, neo-fascist movements in Italy. To discredit the Communist Party of Italy specifically? To discredit the autonomy movement, I thought, not oh. to discredit the PCI. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought it was the PCI. It's entirely possible that uh, the, one of us is wrong. In fact, it's necessary that one of us is wrong. Um, tell us on Twitter. It's interesting you kind of mentioned communism. And I think one of the kind of ways in which um, th these two things, are, the, the, the kind of the Holocaust are, like appeared and then to some extent like disappeared in the far right's own thinking about history, um, that, that communism is a really important moment in that. So from 45, there's a kind of sudden shock. As you say, there is a kind of a, there is some degree of softening in some people, or there is outright flat denial. And then, as you also said, in the trial of Eichmann in 61, I think, in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. um, there is a, uh, it suddenly comes to the fore as not only a crime against humanity, but the crime against humanity, the kind of the absolute like maximum um, act of kind of industrialized depravity. And then sometime in the 80s, there is a, a sense that this whole kind of thing hasn't just kind of, um, uh, isn't, is, is no longer that it's not central as a crime, but that it's also um, anti-communism and uh, critique of the, the Soviet Union has come to the fore in a way that means that actually the crimes of Nazism for people on the far right seem to be kind of essentially equivalent. So Germany, for example, in the debate between Nolte and uh, Hardmas, comes on the far right somewhat to the conclusion that the Germany has a, a history of violence that is not particularly special. It's extreme and it's to be regretted, but it's not to be kind of endlessly uh, repeated and repeated and repeated. And therefore, some of the claims of the far right can be kind of reconsidered in this light because communism is just as bad. Right, because the far left is just as bad. And th this relativism, I think, as you're saying, serves the centre of politics just as much as it serves the far right, this rehabilitation. Um, the, the, as soon as you start relativising and, you know, the, the the Black Book of Communism or whatever it's called, the Big Book of Communism. The Black something. Book of Communism. Black yeah. Book of Communism came about in the 90s and it, it's no, I don't think it's much of a coincidence that that coincide, con coincided with, like, previous years of like historical like a specific historical revisionist movement which was to discredit relativize and deny outright deny the, that the holocaust happened or it happened on such a scale or so many so many of jews died or it wasn't that bad really because look at all the programs and and it's not a coincidence that these kind of things started happening together and in many ways that probably like laid the groundwork for like a lot of these kind of radical right parties who are gaining power now like maybe fascism had to go through a kind of like detoxification it had to you kind of burn through the old guard and get to like you know some new new kind of a new generation all, all the people who kind of like fled to argentina right they're all mostly dead by this point yeah and so there is a sense that like very literally we are kind of burning through an old guard like kind of a you know, scientific paradigm like you just have to wait for all the old scientists to die and then you kind of you know, invent a new one there's also this interesting thing of like certain far-right ideologies kind of super, superseding fascism or at least like kind of like accelerating ahead of them. Uh, I'm thinking what like uh, kind of the ideology of Alexander Dugan, who we didn't mention in the introduction episode, who is going to be a key figure in, in our later discussions because he's, his kind of fourth political ideology is, is, is so influential to a lot of far-right groups in Western Europe. Uh, this idea of America enroaching on like kind of a, a kind of a, a, an innocent Europe, like a, a victimised Europe. Uh, 
and the need to like create a multipolar world in, in order to fight against that. You also have the kind of cultural right wing uh, Gramskyism of the new right, yeah, the new right, the new and right, yeah. and and then following from then almost completely directly generation identity and a, and a broader identitarian movement, which again kind of has this pan Europeanism, which is quite in many ways the, the is hostile to the kind of like the straight ultranationalism of like the fascist parties of the past um you know there was never like a, a fascist international you know there was never like a a, a cooperation across borders there was an uneasy alliance of parties who have vaguely kind of similar kind of outlooks and ways of doing things and you had a lot of you know countries that were like kind of glommed onto the side of it there was never like an organized kind of you know, come in turn. I mean, M Mosley in uh, the alternative in front of 47, Oswald Mosley, uh, was arguing for a kind of pan-Europeanism, more or less immediately after the war. So I'm, I'm not sure that's like particularly kind of like distinct from fascism. I think that, that possibility of kind of pan-Europeanism is, is just kind of a shift from one mode of racism onto a more kind of civilizational discourse of racism, which is, seems to be kind of like still... I think that's more grappling with like um, the whole national front thing of no more brothers wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more wars against white people, but we're still going to be welling with the nationalism, we're still going to be welling with the patriotism and the, the, the country and the, the nation, rather than a kind of like, just to go back to quickly, back to generation identity, and this is not our ep the episode on generation identity, but it is such an alien thing to the far right in the UK to have a kind of, unity with white people in Ireland uh you know like generation identity have like a, a Welsh uh Welsh English and Irish kind of section and anyone in anyone who like kind of like has studied like the far right knows that it's heavily indebted to like unionist far right unionist politics which would like be horrified by this kind of like let's all be together with the Irish kind of thing um is completely like alien and and May, and perhaps is why generation identity hasn't had the traction it, it thought it might have. Do you think that's poss possibly because, I mean, of course we can go into maybe, maybe it's kind of a not so interesting, but there's a kind of a, a shifting um, in like the designation of who is properly white. And at least at some point in history, the Irish weren't properly white and the Italians weren't properly white and this kind of thing. Is there a shifting away from um, kind of skin colour style demarcations of racial identity towards things that are more kind of like culturally oriented and therefore we might say the thing that survives from the second world war is not nazism but is in fact italian fascism which was you know racist in in lots of ways but wasn't racist in the same kind of like way yeah i mean of course those, those people still exist and you know th those people still go to blood and all the gigs and they still kind of listen to screwdriver or whatever the neo-nazi bands are nowadays and do seek heils um but yeah the hegemonic kind of far-right kind of zeitgeist is ultimately rooted in kind of the the call to action of Mussolini rather than the kind of grinding state of Nazi Germany which which is perhaps maybe a maybe a kind of a symptom of fascism being out of power for so long is that they have to return to a kind of like movementist, action-based kind of uh, uh, of way of operating, um, rather than the kind of totalizing state kind of way of operating. Do we maybe this is also kind of like this is actually quite present throughout fascism? Is a real tension between a set of kind of ideological notions and a kind of action principle 
that wants always to simply kind of act in some sort of definite way to be decisive, to um, make decisions and to hold on to power. These are things that are kind of at the core of fascism. And fascism, for example, in some readings, um, just kind of takes on various kind of ideological formulations. But ultimately, what is at the core of it is this kind of um, will to like pure power. And therefore, this kind of move towards um, kind of activism, I guess you could call it in Generation Identities formation, is not actually so historically kind of like um, unusual. But I, 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 obviously, you can go too far in that analysis and say that, you know, of course, fascism is not purely constituted by an action principle. It obviously has like particular ideologies. As long as we could think about um, the move from fascism to neo-fascism as not so much a kind of like a just kind of carrying forward or a diminishing of some kind of total unity, unified kind of package of fascism, but as a circulation of particular techniques, which can be kind of pulled apart from each other, the mass rally as a technique, the you know, various kind of propagandistic techniques, various kind of notions of racial identity, um, political terroristic violence as a technique, all these kind of different things that um, that fascists, classical fascists did use. And we, you can think about them as kind of being pulled apart, reassembled in various formations over the course of the next kind of like, you know, 70 years until the present. So it, I think this allows us to be like clearer. We no longer have to think about whether or not in a kind of yes, no way, fascism was kind of carried out of the Second World War or whether or, whether or not it wasn't. But we can say that certain techniques circulate, certain ideas circulate, certain kind of like, um, yeah, strategies, tactics circulate. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, I think it's quite a useful way of thinking about it, especially if you consider like the kind of situation today in the radical right. There's 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 a very key difference between people like Gert Wilders and people like you know very authoritarian Catholics. You know, Gert Wilders is like a supposed supporter of, uh, you know, gay rights, which is something that would be completely alien to other kind of like very Catholic far right groups and parties. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because the shock of World War II f necessarily forced the reassembling. And as as the kind of 20, the latter half of the 20th century developed, you see a much more deliberate kind of reassembling and a much more deliberate kind of Refutting together of techniques and uh, and ideas uh, through like the new the new right and, and and through other kind of like thinking through. So we've got Goethe builders. Who else are we going to include in our kind of neo-fascist pantheon across Europe? Oh, what a horrifying prospect. Yeah, no, uh, sure. But uh, let's let, let's just kind of name some names. Are we including, for example, Matteo Salvini? Salvini in Italy. Salvini, the Front National, which is now called uh, the uh, so. One of the kind of main features of this podcast is that we can't pronounce anything. Um, let's go for a resemblement. Um, I should have written this down. National Rally. National, National rally. rally. Yes. Fantastic, producer. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the Golden Dawn, which is like a, quite an extreme, you know, I variation. Would say, yeah, I would say the Golden Dawn are neo-Nazi rather than neo-fascist. Right. Interesting. I kind of agree. But like people would put them in the same kind of, on the same kind of level. Um, and of course, they do have certain links to certain figures in across across parties and across kind of movements. One of the kind of people who was trying to assemble this kind of bunch of you know disparate movements into something kind of coherent and also quite like more forceful uh, was of course Steve Bannon, uh, 
the Guardian did some reporting on this a while back about um, Steve Bannon attempt to make the movement, which is a terrible title for a movement because it doesn't say which one, but the movement out of all of these parties and included in that was Salvini and um, Giorgia Meloni, I think uh, she's uh, an Italian um, leader of the Brothers of Italy. There's a Stracha, 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 Freedom Party in um, Austria, Sebastian Kurtz, uh, in Austria, the youngest head of state in the world. Um, Viktor Orban, um, Slovak Togetherness, which is a party in Slovakia, which despite being actually uh, prescribed by the state there, uh, got 8% in the 2016 elections, uh, write-in votes. So it's quite like a kind of ragtag group of people. Um, there are some Salazarists in Portugal, who you might include, and uh, phalangists in Spain. A lot of these groups seem to have, have like almost renounced like one of the core fascist kind of principles which is the rejection of parliamentarianism or at least pushed it down very deep down inside and not letting it out very anytime soon in order to make and, and have made certain compromises in order to leverage their power and there is a legitimate question about um what what ultimately what what counts as fascist and how you define it which i don't think we can do in this episode um but it's ha- it is hanging over these parties like i think we could still like if Salvini came to, you know, London, we should oppose him. If uh, Viktor Orban came to, you know, we should oppose him. But, you know, these are people who, who have kind of rejected the kind of, like, extra-parliamentary route to power. Um, although, of course, you know, factors have always made their compromises with those in power um, and uh, compromises with the state and with the government. So when anti-fascists talk about what does and doesn't count as fascist, what they're really talking about is who we shouldn't and should and shouldn't oppose, and and that isn't like the you know, the core question to kind of any kind of anti-fascist activity. Um, who is who is worth opposing and who isn't worth opposing, and what we have been presented with is it's very easy to like pick out the uh, you know the national actions and the golden dawn and the you know the national socialist movement in America. It's very easy to pick out these like Sieg Heiling, swastika wearing people and say these people could be opposed. Everyone's like, yes, of course, they are clearly Nazis. It's much harder, and you have to make a much more forceful argument to to oppose those which dress in suits, those which kind of present like a kind of civilized face, those who kind of suppress their, uh, those who kind of like present their like vicious uh, racism and Islamophobia within almost acceptable terms of the state. So. For example, it wasn't too long ago, 2014, when then Home Secretary Theresa May was telling migrants to go home on a side of a big van. You could quite easily imagine some kind of like UK, like imaginary UK fascist government to have done, or the system of deportation, mass kind of flights. Um, it's the same in in Italy. Like Salvini can get away with a lot um, because he's he's allowed to get away with it. He can keep people on sea. He can sink boats. He can uh, talk about sinking boats, and and uh, and stuff without having to go the extra step of like organizing like a kind of militant movement um and that's something that we need to we need to think about we need to grapple with but this kind of this this ability to form and indeed this kind of enclosure within a mass movement by its participants the sense in which people are not just kind of um in, don't just kind of engage in fascist fascist uh politics but are consumed by it this is one of the things that seems to have really like 
disintegrated. This like possibility for like f- full-blooded participation. So do you not think that the, the, the distinction between the state doing things in a more or less kind of bureaucratic and managerial way and fascist movements doing things in a kind of way that like consumes their participants is really quite distinct. I mean, what's kind of interesting in like, for example, generation identity activism, there were two actions they had. Um, one, I think was on the French-Swiss border or somewhere mm-hmm. um, in which they were trying to get people, maybe French-Italian border. Mm-hmm. They were trying to convince, they were running patrols um, and they were sending back people who they thought uh, shouldn't be crossing over from Italy into France, basically people who had come from North Africa. Um, and they were saying, sending these people back and saying, no, you can't come here. Uh, and of course, at some point, the state has to step in, um, either to say, you know, fuck off, stop doing this, to generation identity, or to enforce its own laws. And what generation identity was trying to do was trying to lure the state into a situation where it'd be more embarrassing for it to not harshly enforce its own laws. And so there's not necessarily, as you were saying, like, it's not necessarily that the tactics are the same, but the two things or that the, the consequences are the same for people, if fascists or the state do it, but that the two things are actually much more closely aligned than they have been for, I think, probably quite a while. Um, but that's my sense of it. That's an interesting point, and I think it's completely right as well. Like the, this, the, there is a, you can make a very clear distinction between fascism as a movement and fascism, fascism as a government. And there's, there's different strands that are going on there. And they're, at the moment, they're extremely close together. Um, even, t- for example, take Italy again. Salvini is in power. And yet there is also a quite racist, quite explicit fascist street movement in Italy as well, which is, you know, in in kind of the, in the form of Casa Pound and other kind of the bro- brothers of Italy, which is their kind of like militant base, which is what they kind of, Salvini kind of frothed up on. It's this kind of like fervent, like kind of activism. Um, and those two things have got a much, have have gotten a much closer relationship. And in the UK, that you can see this particularly in the kind of transformation of UKIP from like a kind of quite elite party of like all kinds of different political persuasions, you know, liberal through to like quite far right um, under Farage from the you know from the from the mid nineties through to today, which is under Gary Batten, which is like kind of shared a lot of like the kind of respectable kind of organisers in favour of like kind of uh, militant kind of young youth, the YouTube generation, the viral generation, who have, have kind of flooded into the party and swelled its ranks, you know, doubled its membership, maybe tripled, um, and and we can see these kind of transformations happening across Europe. And whether UKIP will have the same traction, like once had, once Brexit finally died, um, one way or the other, you know, it, it, you can quite conceivably see that UKIP are either going both ways, you know. Brexit happens tomorrow, they've got little to go on. If a kind of like hodgepodge Brexit happens, then they've got kind of hook. If no Brexit happens, they'll probably get huge again. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back here next time to talk about generation identity and William Fai, his book, Why We Fight, which is a kind of a textbook for the far right, a kind of a resurgent far right in Europe. We have a Twitter, as mentioned before, um, at... 12 rules for what and you can also support us on patreon um where we are also called 12 rules for what all that money will go towards just you know basic expenses of the show getting guests travel expenses that kind of things also like followers and like itunes and soundcloud yes or review us on itunes all People good say podcast that. apps you know all good podcast apps run them all i don't know how that works but we are definitely on all of them okay <laughs>
See you next time. Bye. 12 rules. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.